what's going on everybody champagne sharks d mills here uh with us we have my co-host my partner in crime my man t trevor hey how's Say it going man yeah, yeah yeah go to um actually yeah just, just go to champagne sharks on twitter <laughs> that's fine yeah you guys know we're, we're we're closing down so many options to to reach out to us now but it's uh champagne sharks at twitter and then you know i'm still on twitter at mdmills 79 and then there's champagne sharks at gmail.com you guys know the deal with us we have a special guest dexter we call him doc steel doc Please go ahead and introduce yourself and tell the people where they can find you. Okay. Uh, uh, hello, everyone and out there in the uh, radio world. But anyway, uh, my name is uh, Dexter Peggins. Uh, I go by the nickname of Doc. Uh, that's just something that's a carryover from the military. Uh, I was in the U.S. Army as a combat medic for 23 years. And basically in the military, uh, that's what they refer to as that uh, that medical person is, is right there with them uh, providing that medical care in the event someone gets hurt. So I'm not a doctor uh, by any means, but uh, you know I do have a little experience in the, in the medical field. Uh, I can be found on Instagram. For those of you who follow Instagram, uh, so social media world on Instagram. My Instagram name is steel.standing. That's S-T-E-E-L dot standing. S-T-A-N-D-I-N-G. Uh, and basically, that's my primary uh, platform as far as uh, uh, communicating a lot of stuff that I do in the uh, emergency preparedness and uh, medical emergency uh, training uh, arena. So that's where you can find me. Man, I first came across you on social media, on your Instagram feed. I follow a few of the different, uh, what they call, you know, the Black Second Amendment advocates or the Black prepper class and things like that. And now you caught my attention specifically uh, because I've seen a couple of training videos from you from a couple of your seminars. And um, one specifically caught my attention is um, I think you were trying to teach how to create an airway. And uh, using some type of device that you put in your nasal cavity. And I'm telling you, man, that looked like <laughs> something out of Hellraiser. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute, man. What is this guy doing here, man? Let me. So I started following you uh, just based on that. And um, I seen you got a lot of great information. And, you know, in this time, uh, over the, I would say over the last, six, seven years, uh, let's say going back to like the Trayvon Martin shooting, uh, the Mike Brown shooting and things like that, there seems to have been like this rise of interest in the black community, specifically about, you know, learning your Second Amendment rights and and, and, and uh, self-defense and, and, and uh, emergency preparedness. There's also been a rise in what they call preppers, you know, people preparing for the worst possible case in an emergency and things like that. And so, you know, I myself, I follow a couple of you guys on, uh, like I was saying, on Instagram. So, you know, before we get started and talking about some of that stuff, man, just give me your your a little bit about yourself. You know, you mentioned in your in the intro that you spent some time in the military. Um, just break that down for us, man. How'd you get interested in going into the military? I noticed on your bio, it says that I think uh, you spent time in the Marines and in the Army. So, you know, you said, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so you live that that military life, man. So tell us a little bit about that. Okay, yeah. Uh, basically, uh, you know, coming from my, my 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 neighborhood growing up, you know, I'm an old head, so uh, I probably don't look at it if you see my pictures. But uh, basically, I came out of right out of high school in the mid. Yeah, your black don't crack. 
<laughs> so, you know, right, you know, coming right out of high school in the mid 70s, uh, uh, that was almost like right after Vietnam War. You know, so it was like a, a thing that a lot of the brothers in the neighborhood was doing, you know, because as far as jobs and different opportunities like that, it wasn't really a whole lot going on. You was either going off to college, you know, continuing education. Or you find a lot of guys at, during that that era, especially in my neighborhood, was going into the military. Uh, so a, a quick quick thing, quick thing. I keep saying my neighborhood. Uh, did okay. you say which? Did you say oh, which yeah. neighborhood? So I'm I'm a I'm originally from Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm originally okay. from, the, from the Midwest, a little small. I'm not going to say it's a small town because it's probably the second largest town in the state of Indiana. Uh, predominantly black neighborhood. Uh, well, I ain't gonna say predominantly black. <laughs> I don't even. I think we may have had maybe uh, one non-black family in the neighborhood at that time. So it's definitely. <laughs> I'll say almost all black. <laughs> but uh, you know, anyway, you know. Uh, so that was the thing. This is around 1977. Okay, kind of give you an idea. Yeah, you know, my age right there. Right out of high school, a lot of us, you know, right after Vietnam, you know, a lot of we had a lot of the vets, a lot of the brothers who had went went off to war, came back and, you know, kind of seen a lot of what was going on with them. But really, that was like a big thing, probably across the country. Matter of fact, when I initially went into the service, I went into the Marine Corps in 1977. And a lot of the brothers that I was in the Marine Corps with going through a boot camp through training out there in San Diego, California, just getting to know them. You know, a lot of the brothers was telling me, you know, back back home, you know, basically they came into the military because they may have gotten into some trouble. And back in those days, they used to actually have a thing that called go to war, go to jail. And that was true. Yeah, I mean, you know, I used to always think it was like fairy tale when you would hear that. But actually, that was the real deal. Some some guys actually came into the military because they had gotten in some trouble, maybe at uh, whatever it might have been, and the judge gave them an option, either go to jail or go into the service. So uh, anyway, you know, a lot of guys chose the service. So anyway, uh, I did two years. in uh, When I initially went into the Mar uh, Marine Corps, prior to uh, while I was in high school, prior to going into service, I actually worked in the hospital. Uh, right, uh, you know, in the evenings I get off school, go go work at this hospital, and uh, and also on the weekends. So I kind of had like a little interest in the medical field early on, just from working in the hospital. But the thing about it is, I worked in the hospital as a janitor, <laughs> so it wasn't like I was, <laughs> so it wasn't like I was passing on any pills, you know. I was over there sweeping and mopping the floor, you know. But uh, right, but still, right, right, that was my initial exposure to the medical field. And I, you know, I kind of, I liked the environment, you know, I, people helping folks and it was cool. So I wanted to go into the medical field, but, uh, you know, but at the same time I was kind of cocky. So I thought I was bad. And a couple of my buddies, we went into the Corps, Marine Corps. So we, we figured the Marine Corps was the hardest branch at that time out of most. So we chose the Marine Corps, but because I couldn't <laughs> go into the medical field because the Marines use Navy personnel, they call them Navy corpsmen. They use Navy people for their medical. And so I knew I didn't want to go into the Navy. So I did my little time in the Marine Corps, and then I got out. So I'm back at home, you know, doing my thing, uh, back at home. And, you know, sometimes, you know, if you've got too much idle time, it can start pointing you in the wrong direction. 
you know, made a conscious effort to go back into the military, conscious decision, decided to go back into the military. I never had, and then in this time, I, I'm actually going into the medical field, want, doing something which I initially wanted to do anyway. So I chose to go into the Army. Uh, I became a combat medic, uh, trained to be a combat medic. And uh, even though it was never my intention to stay in the military as long as I did, but, you know, just like anything, you know, you get in there and it's time to get out. And you say, oh, man, what am I going to do when I get out? So, you know, the security was there. You know, I'm getting paid. I'm learning some stuff. I'm enjoying it. So I just chose to stay in. And so the initial four years, you know, 23 years later, I finally got out. So that's how that went. And so uh, – uh, that was the military stuff. And then uh, once I got out of the military, uh, you know, now we're into like the, the Middle Eastern stuff where a lot of stuff is going on overseas in the Middle East. I took a job working over in the, the Middle East as a contractor uh, with the, over in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, basically, we were training their military people. And because my specialty was uh, medical, I was working with their 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 version of their combat medic, training them on uh, basic combat uh, medical emergency skills. I did that for a little bit, uh, came back home, back to the U.S. And, uh, and in uh, 2014, well, I'm sorry, not 2014, 2004, I actually took a job working at the CDC. So uh, my background is, you know, the medical side. And actually, I, I spent the last 15 years working as a, at the CDC as an emergency response specialist. So that's where my uh, a lot of my interest in emergency preparedness comes in, because uh, one of my duties or some of the things I did while at the CDC, we would actually travel across the country and, and even overseas. Uh, training uh, our our CDC co-workers and locations on how to enhance their emergency preparedness at their facilities with their employees and staff and what have you. So, uh, you know, that's that piqued my interest in emergency preparedness, you know, as far as how it is now. And uh, so uh, I say about six or seven years ago, I started my own little companies called Steel Standing, Steel Standing LLC. And basically what I do is it's a combination of both those parts of my past life. I, I, I train uh, emergency medical skills, emergency, uh, some of the things we, we learned and did primarily in the military that is now converted over to the civilian world as far as um, emergency medical uh, training. And also I teach emergency preparedness, which a lot of that background comes from my time at the CDC and, and just, you know, uh, things I did there, and people I ran across and a lot of training I, I've, uh, you know, I've been involved in over the years. So anyway, uh, that brings me up to where I'm at now. So basically, that's what I do. So that's a long introduction, but that's that's what I do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We got a lot of good information in there. So I wanted to go back um, a little bit to what you were talking about. You touched on it earlier about uh, the options that a lot of brothers had uh, coming from, you know, the, the black communities on the lower income spectrum. Because I know a lot of times today, you know, in recent times, there's kind of almost a um, a negative connotation, you know, for black folks that go in the military. You know, ain't no place for a black man in a white man's army. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> we hear that a lot. Oh, yeah. And so did you did you ever deal with that personally? Was that ever a conflict for you personally, you know, in terms of you being a black man and then going over there and then dealing with, uh, you know, the stigma of being a black man, black man in the military or whatever, uh, you know, coming back home? No, uh, I, I would definitely say me personally, no. 
uh, and, I, and I, you know, I just got to be straight up, you know, because no, I never. And, and matter of fact, even to this day, I don't feel that way. Uh, you know, I mean, even though I heard it a lot, you know, I heard more so that that, you know, that concept or that ideology once I got out of the military and talked to some of the brothers on the street. But a lot of the, okay. but a lot of the guys who you know you might hear that from, and I'm not saying all of them, but there would be a lot of a lot of brothers I would hear that from. They had never been in the military, so they really didn't. I'm just have to say they didn't know what the hell they was talking about, you know, uh, because they <laughs> okay. hadn't experienced it. Now, of course, you go into the military. Not saying all experiences are going to be good experiences. I'm sure there's a lot of folks who went into the military and spent some time in the military, they may have had some bad experiences while in the military, and without a doubt, because the military is really just a cross-section of society. You know, you got the good folks and the bad folks. You got, you know, white, black, Chinese, purple. You know, you get a little bit of everything. And whatever their, uh, you know, their pet peeves or their biases or whatever their ideologies, how they think, you know, they, a lot of times they bring that with them. But, uh, you know, in the military... You know, basically, when you're in the military, you know, uh, you know, that person, regardless, you know, when you're in that situation, um, especially if you're in combat or in a hostile environment, you know, you're dependent on that person on your left and right. You know, that's your family at that time. You know, that's bottom line. You know, that's the person who's going to save your life or help try to get you back home and vice versa. So a lot of the stuff that, you know, you probably hear about on the streets with Folks saying, hey, the military ain't for no black folks. You know, uh, me personally, I had a good experience in the military. You know, uh, I, that's why I spent so much time in there. I'm not saying yeah, the prejudices yeah. and stuff wasn't there because there was, especially when I was in the Marine Corps, big time prejudice at during that time yeah. frame. Uh, but uh, no, you know, I got three sons. All of them in the military. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, and matter of fact, though. Uh, my youngest son, he's been in the military for 15 years. My middle son been in the military for 18 years. So, yeah, no, that's that's why so I'm making career. Yeah. They're making careers out of it as well. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. All right, cool, cool. Um, so now you part of your background that you kind of left out, man, is I want to touch on this this martial arts a little bit before we get into the meat potato. <laughs> yeah. I see some pictures of you. You know, you had your your, your martial arts thing going. Uh, I know that was a heavy thing back in the seventies too. Oh man, yeah, no know, doubt. Especially with sure. the advent of uh, of the of the kung fu flicks and everything like that. So talk to me a little bit about your your martial arts background. <laughs> and you know, and, and and like you you hit on it. I mean, it's. Is, is that era, that time frame, you know, in the uh, late 60s. Jim Kelly and all them brothers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jim Kelly, uh, Steve Sanders, which is now Grandmaster, uh, uh, Steve Muhammad, you know, with the Nation of Islam. You know, I mean, uh, 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 just Dr. Moses Powell, just on and on and on. A lot of black legendary martial artists. Uh, you know, we heard, you know, the ones we more so related to back in that time frame and even to now is like the guys like Bruce Lee or whatever. Because you've seen them on TV, they were actors and stuff like that. But there's a lot of uh, serious brothers that you ain't never heard about that are legends in their own communities. Uh, Ronald Duncan, Moses Powell, uh, Little John Davis, I mean, Thomas LaPuppet. And, you know, you can just go on and on and on. I mean, these guys are for real, for real. But anyway, uh, you know, just 
during that time frame, you know, that's what that's what we did. <laughs> you know, everybody was <laughs> right. into martial arts. So like I, I I say if you got into a fight with a guy, you know, you know, we you know, you might run across somebody who might have had a knife. Uh but the guy they wasn't shooting like they do now, busting, you know, everybody carrying guns, everybody quick to shoot. Back then, you know, if you you either had to, you know, you had to put up them dukes, you know, you either knew how to box or you was into the martial arts. So you got to a fight, man. You ain't know if you're going to go kicked in the balls, jabbed in the eyes, and <laughs> chopped in the throat all at the same time, you know, because right, everybody right. was in it, you know. And so, right, I, right. yeah, I went through that for a while. And, and then when I went into the military, I kind of transitioned away from that because now not so much martial arts. Now you're getting more into like more so self-defense, combatives on the battlefield. You know, your primary uh, weapon systems is, you know, basically, you know, your your firearms and hand grenades and everything else you have available. So, uh, of course, we still practice what we call close quarter combat, close close quarter battle, self-defense, because, um, you know, there's still times of which, you know, you're you know, you might have to resort to those hands and feet. So still in the military, they, they still taught that. But as far as the traditional martial arts, I'm still involved. Uh, like from a distance more so, but uh, back in those days, you know, I was uh, like a lot of guys. I was, you know, I was deep into that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> what uh, what system specifically did you train in at the time? So in my area, in my city, you know, like like a lot of places, uh, in the seventies, starting off during that era, made the 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 strong uh, practitioners or the traditional martyrs, martial artists. We had a strong Korean presence. A lot of uh, the the instructors in that area, they were studying under Korean systems, Taekwondo. I studied Taekwondo. I studied a style, also style called Mudokwan Tong Sudo. You know, uh, uh, I also dibbled and dabbled with uh, Sean Ray, which was like another like uh, a style more geared towards a, a Japanese or Okinawan style form of martial arts. So we just had a. Uh, my primary instructor was a Korean. He, he, you know, he was an instructor of black belt in Korean style. So just involved a lot of the kicking and a lot of the fancy kicking, spin kicks and all that kind of stuff. And then later on, you know, as I started getting more exposure to other martial artists, that's when I realized, you know, those kicks is good to a certain extent, you know, but uh, you need to have your hand game together, too. So now I started <laughs> right. venturing off to some of the styles like Kempo Karate, which is a more hand technique, a lot of hands, a lot of close in hand, knee, you know, hands and elbows and stuff like that. So, but Ed Parker's, uh, Ed Parker style. Say again. Yeah. Uh, Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah. Ed Parker. Yeah. He was like one of the original guys, you know, a lot of those guys back in those days that brought, we'll say uh, the, the martial arts to the, to, to the country, to the United States. A lot of those guys were ex military guys. And so they might have learned while they were in the military, you know, the Marine Corps, you know, they probably was in Japan or Okinawan. So when they came back to the States, they brought a lot of the Japanese or Okinawan style martial arts with them. The guys who served in Korea in the military, they came back with a lot of the Korean Taekwondo, Mudokwan Tong Sudo, and some of the other Korean styles. So, it, and that's where a lot of that initial martial arts came from. A lot of those guys, they they probably had a background 
either themselves in the military or somebody they knew from the military who passed that stuff on and you know they just continued with it so uh a lot of the brothers that came home from the military when you start talking about like the um the black coming out of the panther the height of the black panther party movement and everything like that mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the brothers that that helped formulate combative things and things like that in those programs they also had military backgrounds correct Oh, yeah. Yeah. Matter of fact, you know, I, I grew up in that era of the Black Panther Party. You know, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, we had our own chapter even in my little hometown. So, oh, yeah. Word. OK. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No doubt. And so, uh, you know, uh, so most definitely, I mean, because I mean, uh, back then the martial arts was in, in the, you know, we call that the Eastern coming from the Eastern countries. Uh, uh, United States being a westernized country. It was all mystic. It's like all like yeah. you know, hocus pocus <laughs> and stuff. Like you know, because you know, back in the U.S., you know, back then in the sixties and seventies, you know, guys they was good at boxing. You had the guys who would uh, go to school, knew how to wrestle. Uh, but as far as martial arts, you know, just kicking, this punching, you know, stabbing, jabbing guys in the eyes and grabbing them by the throat and twisting it. You know, they weren't doing all that. And so, uh, so. I don't know if you remember, or maybe you might know someone who does remember. It was almost like uh, this big old event that took place in the United States when they finally started releasing these martial arts movies into into the U.S. And one of the biggest movies was this movie called Five Fingers of Death. I mean, you would you would you would go to these movie theaters. It was you would think it was like the dang Super Bowl about to play at the movie right. theater. I mean, that's right. how. That's how big that stuff was back then, because to wait, us, wait, it which, was fascinating. Uh, which movie theater in uh, which city? Oh, I'm I'm talking about my I'm talking about my hometown. I went to a movie theater, <laughs> like probably oh. back then. A lot of movie theaters. You had your uh, your theaters that were in your neighborhood. So, in my particular hometown, we had a theater called the Rialto, and that's where all the black movies were played at back. Back during that time frame, they called the black exploitation movies, the Superfly, the the Mac, uh, that kind of stuff. You know, uh, Pam Greer, Coffee. Uh, so pretty much in my hometown during that time frame, as far as black folks, there's one particular movie theater we went to, and that was it. You know, and uh, so all the movies we went to go see, that's where we watched them at. So when this particular movie came out, Five Fingers of Death. I mean, it was like sold out around the corner for like a week before you could even get in to see the movie. You know, it was crazy. Yeah, when I was uh, when I was growing up in the 80, 80s, that still happened. Uh, the Kung Fu movies, the Shaw Brothers movies in the mm -hmm. um, black movie theaters and all the black people would be in the theaters. Like people would be smoking weed, all types of crazy <laughs> stuff going on in the, in the theaters. But... I always thought this just happened like in uh, big cities, like you know, like like Watts, New York, whatever. I didn't know that in the Midwest and other parts that uh, scene was being duplicated. I didn't oh know that yeah, that's going on everywhere. Man. Oh, so, wow. oh, oh, oh so, so, so so the Asian movies in the black movie theaters was a national thing. I didn't I didn't know that. That's oh yeah, and so oh. you talking about in the eighties? This started in the seventies. So you we yeah. about ten years later when you checking it out oh yeah all this stuff started like uh like bruce lee his first big movie in the u.s was enter the dragon but you had other movies that came out before that and you know, before bruce lee before bruce lee got real popular like that you had like you like say the shaw brothers some of those movies they were making 
uh, one of the big movies was this movie Five Fingers of Death, and that probably came out like in uh, I'm just guessing, speculating, kind of. It probably came out in like maybe like 1972 or 71 or something like that. Yeah, so yeah, so it's been around. You know, I mean, you know, our community have been fascinated with the martial arts for a long time. You know, we always trying to perfect our. I call it whoop ass skills, you know. So, yeah. you know, uh, and back, you know, that's been going and, on for a minute, you know. And back then, there was no VHS market and stuff like that. To yeah. see old movies, they had to be aired on TV or they would re release things in theaters all the time because they were still re releasing Flying Guillotine, Five Fingers of Death, Chinese Super Ninjas, all, all those Shaw Brothers <laughs> stuff in theaters up until the 80s. Like, like when we were watching them, we didn't know we were watching. Yeah. 10 year old, no, that's stuff, yeah, that's bold stuff, yeah, that's bold yeah. stuff, man. I'm serious, uh, yeah, like I say, growing up in the neighborhood in the inner city, like in the you know, I'm sure it was happening everywhere, you know, uh, yes, it was, yeah, it so was. I mean, it, it wasn't nothing just unique to where you know, where then we had where the, we, we had the ninja, the ninja craze of the 80s, that's kind of oh, like yeah. when I came into recognition of everything in the 80s, man, we had the, the whole ninja craze, so. You know, it was Revenge of the Ninja, Ninja Three, The Domination. Then I, I was going to bring up Ninja Three. Did you ever see Ninja One and Two? No one ever saw. I never saw. I don't even know. I still don't know if there's a Ninja. Yeah, one I've been two. looking. Everyone knows Ninja Three, and it had the girl from Breaking in it, but no one could ever find Ninja, Ninja One, one and or Two. two. Yeah, and, and the funny thing about it is the way that it was presented, it was like it was the third part of a trilogy because mm-hmm. it looks like it's continuing from something else with the character that Hokosaki was playing. Like he was familiar with this guy. Uh, the the demon ninja or whatever, but I don't remember ever seeing a ninja two or one. And so you know, just speaking of uh, ninja or nin- ninjutsu, you know, a lot of the history that you know we know about the Bruce Lees or what have you. I mean, I mean, I never take nothing away from Bruce Lee. I mean, he was he was bad. He was he was what he was. But a person that very few of us are familiar with, except for you know maybe if you like really into the martial arts and the history behind it in the United States. Uh, as far as the black martial artists, uh, you have Professor Ronald Duncan. Professor Ronald Duncan him in Black Belt is, is actually a true guy who studied new, uh, various forms of ninjutsu. Actually, he is like the original ninja of the United States. I mean, he's a brother. He, he died a couple of years back, but he's well known in the East Coast, uh, the New York area. Uh, because that's pr- predominantly where, you know, he, he, you know, a lot of his schools, a lot of his students and stuff are from. But if you are really into like the, the history of the ninja, like ninjutsu in the United States, uh, you would be remiss not to look up uh, Professor Ronald Duncan, the black ninja, because his brother was doing this long time ago. But very oh, yeah. few I people he, are familiar with him. Yeah, I think he made the cover of Black Belt magazine a couple. Yes, times he did. I mean, you'll hear about uh, they'll you'll hear people talk about the American Ninja uh, Stephen Hayes. Okay, uh, white guy, white gentleman. But Ronald Duncan was even before that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so yeah, and uh, I mean, and and like talking about ninjutsu, for example, the ninja craze. I mean, in the 70s, and I'm gonna say this, and it probably sound crazy, but it's true. Uh, we used to walk with like how guys walk around with like uh, we'll say pocket knives and stuff like that. Well, guns now, uh, you know, we used to walk around with those throwing stars. They call them shurikens. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. We had, oh, yeah. We had them in our pocket. 
You know, those wow. and uh, okay. Nunchuck, Nunchuck, uh, Nunchuck. Uh, yeah. uh-huh. I mean, you jump on the catch, you go, you bout, you know, you you might get a serious surprise. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Funny. Those are actually banned in California now. Oh, so yeah, that just they, goes to yeah. show how, yeah. how wild had, it yeah. was back those then. Those throwing stars, they call yeah. them shur- shurikens. Those throwing stars made out of a heavy die-cast metal, sharp on all edges. Oh, we had those. I, yeah, I used yeah. to carry them all we, the time. We had those, too, in the Army-Navy stores and, like, bodegas and stuff would sell. And they probably weren't any damn good, you know? They probably weren't authentic at all. But we used to all, like, uh, get them and then practice uh, really dangerous stuff, like throwing it at each other. But but, <laughs> but you want to know how crazy the um, uh, ninja craze got? Two friends of mine who grew up in the Bronx in the 80s, they were walking down the street in the Bronx, and a ninja, fully clad ninja, jumped out from behind a tree, threw a star at them. <laughs> and, then ran, and, then, and then ran away. <laughs> what and, the hell? That's, that's crazy yeah. right there. <laughs> and, 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 and the person didn't know what they were doing. The star didn't do any damage. I don't right. even remember if it even hit them, but they were just so shocked that <laughs> that really just happened. <laughs> well, I think the the idea behind the the, the throwing uh, the stars, the shrieking, they actually did, they, they had stars and they had like little needles or daggers and they were all weighted too. But the, yeah, the exactly, exactly. Those was that um, in, in ancient Japan, with the ninja would dip those things in various poisons. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the idea was the star itself was not what killed you. It was the poisons that they that they exactly. attached to it that exactly. would get into your bloodstream and then later kill you. Exactly. You know? Exactly. But you know, everybody took it from watching the the movies, you know, you throw a ninja star <laughs> at somebody's head and it you're penetrates like... their skull or something. <laughs> but but also also when you're a kid, you don't really realize the physics of things. So like, yeah, like yeah. <laughs> so so like I, I used to think and you know a lot of people used to think that you just kind of casually toss the thing, but to make it stick in the wall or even a knife, you gotta throw it with some serious force. And and no kids generating force like that, you know, uh where you're like turning your turning your hips and flicking your wrist like really and doing like a real, real uh throw. So we're just we must have been tossing playing cards at each other. The way, the way, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But you know, the guys uh, back in those days, uh, and I'll say this, you know, I, you know, uh, they were serious about. It. I mean, you still got. I mean, there's guys who, for real. I mean, they live, they breathe, they they live martial arts every day. I mean, they practice all the time. I mean, they 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 themselves were a weapon. I mean, you hit one of them guys, man. You you damn it, um, you almost break your hand hitting them. You know what I'm saying? Wow. I mean, because they're <laughs> serious about it. You know, uh, it, it wasn't no joke. They they took that serious. But uh, yeah, and uh, like you said, uh, you know, back in that time, man, especially with everybody crowding into the theaters, you know, that adrenaline coming out of watching those movies. I'm pretty sure a lot of dudes. <laughs> We wanted to test it out. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. Like, okay, let's let's go ahead and, and exactly. head to the back of the theater now. And <laughs> let me exactly. Do this. You hear that on the head. I mean, when you you know you go to practice and you just I mean you hoping somebody jump on you. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. want to fight. I mean, it's not you a bully. You you just want to see. You just want to test it out on somebody. If I just learned this technique. I want somebody. I want a real life person I can practice it on. You know what I'm saying? And that uh, was the original backyard wrestling. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, I'm saying that was the original backyard wrestling. Basically, is same way white guys like to make uh, backyard wrestling after they watch WWE. Like a lot of us were just in people's yards, just. (laughs) 
trying to kick, kick each other's ass doing what we saw in the uh, <laughs> yeah. Kung Fu movies. I was the same way as a kid, man. It was, uh, that was like the big thing. Let me, um, so let me talk to you about this real quick. What, before we move on to the to the next topic, what, what do you think about like the rise of MMA now versus traditional martial arts? Because I know a lot of people are moving away from traditional martial arts now and, and moving more into the realm of mixed martial arts, um, you know, because they think it's more effective or whatever like that. What do you, what do you think about that whole deal? Yeah, actually, I think that was, a, uh, you know, that was a, a, a real good move. I mean, I mean, what's going on with the MMA, the mixed martial arts? Because uh, it's just really comp- uh, combining, you know, we call it warrior sciences, you know, the boxing, the wrestling, the judo, jujitsu, uh, the traditional kar- uh, karate styles. And it's just it's more practical. And it t- it's, to me, it's more realistic. Because you know, if, if your whole focus as a um, as as a fighter uh, is like, okay, as long as I'm standing up, I got you. But if this guy takes me down to the ground, I'm useless because I'm a boxer and I really don't know how to move once I hit the ground. Okay, or versus a guy who's a, a wrestler. Okay, while well, I'm standing up, while we still standing up, I'm getting all kind of knots upside my head because I'm just trying to wait for the opportunity to sweep him or grab his legs and take him to the ground. So my stand-up game is messed up. So I don't have a ground game. I don't have a stand-up game. So what mixed martial arts do, it brings, it, it ties it all together. Whether we standing up or whether we go to the ground, you know, you still have the ability to do what you need to do or try to defend yourself against what what's going on. So mixed martial arts is just uh, really just a, uh, it's more practical. It's just a combination of, um, of different uh, fighting systems or warrior sciences all combined into one where whether we standing up, kicking and punching it out or whether we go to the ground and I'm choking you out. I'm still going to be somewhat effective. So I, I think is uh, it was a, a good move. And, you know, we talked about Bruce Lee earlier, you know, even, uh, but, you know, like I said, it's a whole lot of brothers out there that, you know, was doing, been doing their thing. Dr. Moses Powell, guys like that. Uh, but uh, that's what Bruce Lee was doing. You know, and he even talks about, he used to watch Muhammad Ali when he would box. Uh, how he moved and stuff like that. Uh, he incorporated a lot of wrestling and judo techniques in his fighting uh, style, Jeet Kune Do. So basically, you could almost say he was doing MMA way back then as far as people being more familiar with it. A lot of people credit Bruce Lee with being the first mixed martial artist, the first advocate of uh, mixed martial arts. But I do think one thing that uh, that I've noticed with the rise of MMA is, you know, the... Um, the availability of the training is very widespread, man. You can go to a, find an MMA gym or at the very least a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym that that incorporates MMA almost everywhere. Now, you know how like they used to say it's a church and a liquor store on every corner? Right. Well, now it's like an MMA studio on every corner now. And with that, you get this proliferation of guys that you know, think they're badasses because they took three months of MMA training and then they want to go out and 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 use it on on people. And so it seems like um, with the as the traditional martial arts kind of fade to the background, that 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 sense of respect and and um, and and the discipline that came with the traditional martial arts that's kind of being lost in favor of just you know a bunch of people that want to know how to whoop somebody's ass. 
you know. Oh yeah, I definitely agree with you. I definitely agree with uh, with that. A lot of the traditional, the stuff that you learn from uh, the traditional styles of systems, primarily the discipline and the structure. A lot of that is lost. I mean, that's gone. I mean, I mean, to me, it's a blessing if you can find an old school uh, martial artist that still focuses on a lot of the traditional stuff. You know. Uh, I mean, because a lot of that tradition, it incorporated a lot of that discipline, you know, that discipline in your training, uh, in your thought process. You, you know, you're you know, you you learning this stuff, but you ain't learning to be no bully because you could actually utilize a lot of what you learn uh, in, in different aspects of life, period. As far as the discipline and stuff, you know, and fitness, it was health. as much a spiritual journey. Exactly. I mean, when you deep into it, like the guy, you know, I never got that deep into it. I ain't gonna say even pretend like I did. But I mean, there's very there's different levels of it. I mean, you you move from the physical aspect to the mental, the spiritual, all of that. And the people who've been into it for a long time, you know, uh, they master that stuff. So, I but you do have a lot of one. a lot of BS in the. In the I will say. There's some stuff in in uh, some of the more esoteric traditional martial arts circles, man. Where you know you got guys talking about they shooting energy blasts at people and and all that <laughs> kind of stuff, and knocking seven guys down with a with a wave of the hand and all that. Oh, kind oh of yeah, yeah. yeah. YouTube is yeah. a lot of that. Now you yeah. know, I, yeah. I mean, I, I I never saw anybody doing that stuff, you know. But uh, right, right, you know, right. But I uh, but I will say this, you know, I will say this. As far as the chi and uh, the the you know, being able to project your inner energy outward, uh, where you can move objects and do different things. I'm gonna tell you, I've I've actually seen some things in real real world, real life that would you know that would you would say, oh man, damn, how you do that? You know, I've seen brothers that laid down on boards with nails uh, sticking through them. Uh, and having cinder blocks crushed on top of their chest with sledgehammers. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Definitely seen that. You know, I've seen guys stick rods through their skin and hold up uh, heavy buckets of water. Uh, I've saw that, you know, so, you know, uh, but once again, these are the guys who's deep into it, you know, uh, know, who know how to master that pain, you know, (laughs) they know how to lay the right way, you know what I'm saying? You know, because there's some secrets to that stuff, too. Now, when you see a guy, he doesn't, shattered like uh, 10, 10 feet of ice. There's uh-huh. spacers and stuff between each one of them slabs of ice. So uh-huh. you kind of create that effect. There's almost like a Physics. collapsing effect. Yeah. You know? it's, a, so, it's a science behind yeah, it. Yeah, it's a science yeah, to yeah. it. But uh, uh-huh. but the guys who really deep into it, uh, I mean, who really, you know, that was, they live, breathe, sleep, martial arts. That'd be your worst nightmare to, to mess with one of them. You know, uh-huh. that's all I can yeah. say. Yeah, that's right. I used to take Taekwondo and uh, I took it in high school and I had to stop when I got to college because I was leaving New York. So um, I made it up to like Purple Belt, which is not like super far. But um, that's like one of the martial arts now that in this new MMA craze, like people, people don't really like a lot of the traditional stuff um, anymore. And I honestly can't say because I can't say I went very far in it. You know, I can't say how practical uh taekwondo is or isn't for a real world fight like i remember some certain like disarming and that like, a handful of submission stuff but most of it you know like that like, some arm locks for submission and stuff that i still remember but most of it was just kicks but exactly yeah i will say even something like that that is arguably not great for um real life combat especially that sports style stuff because the original taekwondo i think is is military and right. what what we were learning in that class 
it's like a bunch of kids after school. They're not teaching us uh, the military version. They're teaching us the version for competing in uh, sports. Competition. Sports. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's a whole different. Yeah. It's, it's definitely different... watered down. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's definitely watered down. But I will tell you, that is one of the most conditioning heavy things you can do. Like, like the way they make you kick, they make you pivot your back foot 180 degrees to do a kick. And you have to have a really good, solid support leg to do that so just make you kick kick and kick it's like those movies where the person makes a student just kick one thing all day long like they would make us do a lot of stuff like that so i i feel like with this new trendiness everybody wants to talk about like maximum efficiency or um you know i can take out a guy in like five moves and stuff but i think even the so-called bad stuff you're you're getting benefits from it even if it's just good conditioning you know like like doing push-ups and let's well, keep was, it honey. I was uh, stationed in Korea in, uh, when I was in the Army, stationed in uh, Korea. And, uh, you know, one of the things with the South Koreans, they had a group they called the Rock Army, Republic of Korea. Uh, and then they had a uh, part of that unit was a Tiger Division, like Rock. I mean, they these South Korean soldiers that all, um, that's all, they, their daily exercise was Taekwondo. Uh, and so, uh, uh, like, like what you just said, you know, the version that you get in like the clubs and the gyms here, you know, a lot of that is, you know, sports It's for sport It's for, uh, sport fighting competition to get a trophy, what have you, uh, the Taekwondo that I saw those guys doing in Korea. Oh, that's, that's a killer cat or to keep somebody from killing you on the battlefield. So there's definitely a difference between the two. And, and, and it's like I, with this new culture, this is American culture in general, but there's this thing of everything is all or nothing. What I'm doing is the best thing ever mm. and everything else yeah, yeah. totally sucks and is useless. And I feel like people just throw out the, the baby with the bathwater because as long as you're doing something, you're, you're learning something. You, you know, like uh, I feel like too many cats now will say, like, oh, that's sports taekwondo. It's it's useless. Or, or you're doing kenpo. Uh, uh, forget it. You're a dinosaur. You know, like uh, no, no, no. Yeah, and and I think it's a bad way. It's a very Americanized way. I think of thinking about uh, martial arts. And w- and one thing about uh, and I'll just say this, and I, and I, you don't have to be a black belt, uh, a master, uh, any of that. You know, I, I mean, you know, martial arts, combative arts, whatever. You know, I know guys who, who they don't know. No, I, I mean traditional martial arts. They don't. They ain't study none of that kind of stuff. But they, you know, you they got about five or six techniques, and it's just like anything, just repetition. They practice it, they practice it, they practice it, and would tear your butt up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> because they perfect yeah. it. So just like you said, uh, where you in the Taekwondo, where they're kicking a thousand times, it's like a guy who's shooting a free throw every day, a hundred free throws a day. Eventually, you get so good at it, it's uh, it's like second nature. So you, as far as fighting skills, you know, if your combination is straight jab, right hook, kick, jab, and you you just do that over and over and over, <laughs> you you'd be surprised how effective that can get. <laughs> right, right, you know, so. yeah, exactly. Especially yes. considering that most people are not trained in any type of discipline at all. You know, what yes. I'm saying? as far as like on the streets and things like that. So juxtaposed to not training at all, I guess you hell you're gonna take that as opposed to not doing anything at all, right? So let's let's get into um. You, you, what, were you going to say something, T? Oh, no, I wasn't saying anything. Okay, okay. Um, so let's get into this. Now, I've noticed, like, I think I touched on this a little bit earlier in the introduction. I would say starting around 2013 or so, like, right after the Trayvon Martin shooting, and then, you know, with the Mike Brown situation, and then we just had, like, this wave of, of 
of attention placed on police shootings of unarmed black men and women. Um, and then I started noticing like this rise in people, black folks going to the gun shop, arming themselves, taking classes, learning how to shoot, all these types. of. And um, with that also, I started noticing more and more black experts that were coming out and, and providing some of this training and things like that. And then it really skyrocketed, I guess, kind of like after Trump was elected into office. And then, you know, it, it, it took it up to another level because then you had a lot of white supremacists coming out in the open and being real bold. Now, I kind of dispute that a little bit because I, I say they were bolder under Obama uh, oh, yeah. in certain respects because that's when the shootings were cracking off, you know, to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me about a little bit about your uh, intro, intro into that that space, man, and and um, what your lane okay. is in there, and you know what your observations were with that subject, with this whole rise of black folks getting interested in the Second Amendment and and defense and all that kind of stuff. Okay, and I'm gonna try not to be biased. Uh, you know, I'm yeah, gonna I hear, I present this in a real open minded conversation. And you know, I would just say starting off history of uh, firearm uh, black. We call it blacks with gun, black ownership, what have you. You know, our history with firearms goes back decades. I mean, when you think about uh, Ida B. Wells, uh, she she actually said a comment in which, you know, basically said, you know, damn, every black farmer, every black person need to have a shotgun, a rifle, a pistol all over the house. I mean, that was her <laughs> right. quote verbatim, but that basically what it meant. Uh, you had a brother named Robert. I'm, you, I'm, heard, I'm sure you heard of a group called the Deacons for Defense. The guys who used to provide uh, security for uh, the, uh, the the folks when they was trying to vote, uh, the vote down there in Louisiana, some of the southern states, because they had multiple chapters all over the country. I mean, all mainly in the south, uh, Monroe, Louisiana, uh, a lot of places down in the south in which, for, for example, a lot of the brothers that made up the Deacon of Defense, they were old or former, like World War II and World, uh, World War I and World War II veterans and uh, way back Korean War and, you know, some of the old school guys. But, uh, you know, they took up arms to try to pro- protect, uh, you know, their communities from the Night Riders, the Ku Klux Klan, and all these other folks that was trying to intimidate the people from coming out and voting and exercising their rights basically to live. Uh, you know, we've had ownership or uh, association with firearms for a long time. Uh, a lot of times it was just basically primarily used or kept kept as a secret and, and were only used to try to pretty much protect the families and uh, communities and what have you uh, from a lot of the intimidation and the harassment and the violence that was going on across the country. Uh, uh, bringing that up to Black Panthers, you know, the, the original Black Panther Party that started out in California. I know, uh, you know, you guys are familiar with that or out there in Oakland, what have you, with uh, Bobby Seale and uh, Huey P. Newton and stuff like that. You know, once again, exercising the right to bear arms, uh, exercising the right, Second Amendment rights to uh, to also, you know, to use them weapons in form of self-defense to protect the communities against the police harassment, which was we we'll say is the modern day Ku Klux Klan uh, or whites, uh, you know, these uh, guys who was harassing the communities back in those days in that area. Uh, so, uh you know, bringing it up to now, you know, it wasn't so much what happened with Trayvon and uh, Mike Brown and some of the other issues that has happened recently. 
you know, I think what 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 we have started to realize is a lot of times uh, it, it appears. I, I'm not going to say I know it to be a fact, but I would just say from what the appearance shows or has demonstrated is in some cases, the folks who have been sworn and taken the oath and trained so so far to so, supposedly to uphold and protect the law and the rights of all citizens, that may not necessarily be the case. You know what I'm saying? Those same individuals might be the ones who have who are actually committing that offense. You know, uh, uh, so with that said, you know, there's a thing in like the some of the folks that I associate with, you know, it, it, we say it is you got to be your own first line of defense. In other words, if something happens, you know, you know, we know what the law is. We know who's supposed to come to be of assistance, what have you. But at the same time, you know, you need to be prepared to, in a legal manner, of course, exercise your Second Amendment rights to protect and defend yourself if needed. You know, if, if I got to place my life or the uh, life of my loved ones and people I care about in the hands of someone who may not necessarily have my best interests, then I need to be planning on plan B. So plan B for me is I'm going to have my best interests. And so what you have now is you just have a lot of brothers, sisters. I mean, a lot. <laughs> you know, it's just like, uh, hey, we got to do what we got to do. We see how the, the world is coming, uh, has transitioned. Uh, like you said, with the election of President Obama, it, a lot of those guys who uh, had certain biases towards people that didn't look like them, a lot of that stuff started coming out and open. I remember going to a gun shop uh, when President Obama got elected, a gun store. I was just looking around, and they had a picture of President Obama on the counter. And they and on, and on the thing, uh, underneath the uh, picture, it was a picture of President Obama, there was a caption. It said, the best thing that ever happened to gun sales. Mm. I mean, because, oh, yeah. And that was in Indiana, too. You know, uh, my hometown, matter of fact. Say again? He was also a boon for the for the prepper community, which is something I wanted to talk about. Like, prepper community really boomed under Obama. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good. Be good.